scripture reading for Pentecost Sunday is from the second chapter of the book of Acts. Hear these words. When Pentecost Day arrived, the disciples were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly a sound from heaven like the howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their own language. They were surprised and they were amazed and they said, look, aren't all the people who were speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native languages? Perithians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya, bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in each of our own languages. They were all surprised and they were bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them saying they're full of new wine. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, amen. Amen and amen, good morning. Such a pleasure to be back with you again. If we have not met, my name is Adam Caldwell. I used to be one of the associate pastors here at Salem. I'm privileged to be here for the month of June. So you all are stuck with me for another, what, three weeks, four weeks, counting, counting today. So uh, we, have been, we started a new sermon series last week, and the sermon series we titled Bad Math Equals Good Theology. Bad math equals good theology. And in this sermon series, we are doing our best to wrestle with the understanding and the idea of the Trinity. The Trinity is one of the, if not the most foundational aspects of Christianity, and it is one of the things that sets us apart from other world religions. Um, other world religions honestly would look at us and say, are you sure you guys aren't polytheistic? You know, are you worshiping multiple gods over there? What's going on? And we're like, no, they're all individual, but they're the same. Makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. So last week, um, if you haven't had a chance, I, I do want to encourage you to go on to Salem's website, uh, commend Kimberly on this because she primarily oversees it, but the, it's fantastic. If you miss a sermon especially if you go on your phone and you pull up the website, the first thing that comes up are the sermons. So you can actually go in, uh, put your headphones in, maybe you're cleaning the house or doing something and you can catch up and listen to the sermons. I actually did this this week and there were three pastors preaching all on the Trinity within our Salem context. So uh, Tim Power was preaching in the 930 service and Sean McIntyre was down at the Connection preaching on the Trinity down there. So if you go listen to all three of those, they are all very different, <laughs> but it could give you kind of a, a fuller rounding of the idea of the Trinity as we all try to wrestle with how to get this concept across to you all, because inevitably, we all said the same thing. We said, look, no matter how many analogies we throw at you, no matter how many pictures we give you, the reality is, is, is you're not going to fully understand this. You're not fully going to grasp this. And that's okay. 
Um, Sean said something really great last week uh, that I'll, I'll tag on to. Even if you don't fully understand God, you still learn more about God and fall more in love with God. And the example he gave was, he's never going to fully understand his wife. But yet, as the relationship unfolds and they learn more about one another, they fall more in love. And I just thought that's kind of a beautiful picture of, of our understanding of the Trinity and, and trying to view the Trinity. Last week I said, um, don't look at the Trinity from a mechanical trying to pull it apart perspective, but more like art and how we view art and how art changes us and transforms us. Um, that's how I think we should, we should look at the Trinity. Now, I just said analogies don't work, but let me give you an analogy. <laughs> so if I had a bicycle right here, two wheels, handlebars, chains, all of that stuff, and I take it apart and lay it down on the ground, is it still a bicycle? Yes, maybe. <laughs> Potential to be, yeah. I think the same thing happens when you try to pull apart the Trinity too much. It lo you lose perspective on what, it, what the Trinity is intended to be doing in our lives. So that's what I want to encourage you to do. That being said, today we're going to look specifically at the Holy Spirit and some of the attributes of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit can inform our conversations with one another. Remember last week we talked about that in America we are at the most divided we've ever been ideologically. Um, historically speaking, it, it hasn't been this bad since just after the Civil War. What that tells us, I don't know, we're still trying to figure that out. But we are as far apart on the left and right divide as we possibly can. Now, I tried to do my best to make the argument that from my perspective, some of that is built into hyper-individualism, and some of that is built into hyper-collectivism. And there's problems with both. That if, if left to their own devices, they can steamroll on both of those, those sides. And so what I'd like us to do is, through the teaching of the Trinity, do our best to pull those two ideas together, that individualism is incredibly important, meaning that I am not you and you are not me, and that we hold value in and of ourselves because we are created by God. Right? But we are also interconnected and interrelated with one another. And I do have an impact on you, and you do have an impact on me. So how can we hold those two things in tension and still have constructive conversations with one another? So that's really what I want to pull apart today. My goal this morning is not to um, tell you what to think. That's not my goal. My goal is not for you to come down on a specific side of an issue. That's not my goal. My goal this morning is to hopefully give us a framework that we can continue conversations. Okay? Because I know I'm walking a tightrope this morning. Because I know that there's probably some people in this room keeping in mind that we are as divided as we've ever been, and we are living in an us-versus-them mentality more than we've ever been, that some of you are looking at the Republicans and saying, ooh, the enemy, and some of you are looking at the Democrats and saying, ooh, the enemy. 
Um, and I'm walking this tightrope in between you going, I don't want to say either one of you is right. How about that? <laughs> so that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the hope this morning. I uh, mentioned Jonathan Haidt last week. Jonathan Haidt, again, refresher, he's a social scientist, um, psychology professor. He actually works at the New York School of Business and um, does business ethics and all kinds of stuff there. He came out a few years ago, and he's, he's not alone in this camp, but social scientists have been pushing something called confirmation bias for a few years now. How many of you are familiar with confirmation bias? Okay, some of you are. Um, let me kind of explain to you what confirmation bias is. I'll first ask you a question. How many of you would consider yourselves rational human beings? <laughs> when you make a decision, do you make a pros and cons list? Some of you, maybe yes. Some of you are a little more intuitive. But I like to think that I think through things and that I don't just come to my conclusions, you know, at a whimsy. Reality is, the idea of confirmation bias is that you don't think through things, and I don't think through things. What we end up doing is we make an almost instantaneous decision, whether it's a political perspective, whether we're making a purchase, I'll give you an example of that in just a second, and then we use logic and reason to back up the decision that we've made, okay? So they've done social experiments. They've taken an article, um, let's say it's a non-divisive issue like gun control. <laughs> they laughed, Deb. It's 10.45 at it. 8.30 didn't laugh. I got one. <laughs> so they take this article on gun control and they have two people who have identified, you know, yes, yeah, Second Amendment, pry the guns out of my cold, dead hand kind of people. And then on the other side, no, we need to ban guns all over, like as far apart as you can get. Same article. They set that article down in front of those two individuals. They read the article and they go back and question them. And it's questions like, um, what are the main points of the article? Um, does this article defend your particular position? And guess what happens? No, they say the article defends my position, and in fact, they become more entrenched in the position that they previously had. This is confirmation bias. Let me give you a less, um, I don't know, divisive example. In my job, as a financial advisor, I do a lot of um, behavioral analysis, behavioral economics. Most of what a good financial advisor does is not necessarily crunch the numbers, although that's an important part of the job that we have, but really it's getting to know the client and know how they operate behaviorally speaking. So I had this uh, happen to me. I, I love golf. Anybody else out there? Big golfer. Got the U.S. Open coming up next week. Um, and I realized I was out on the golf course. It's one of my business plans to play golf 10 times a year. It's one of my business goals to play golf. You laugh, but it's... That's a very important goal. And 10 might not seem like that much, but when you've got an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 2-and-a-half-year-old, getting out 10 times a year is kind of a chore. Um, anyway, I'm out on the golf course, and I notice that my 3-iron, there's a gap between my 3-iron and my 4-wood. 
And for you non-golfers, what that means is that when I hit my three iron, it goes a certain distance. When I hit my four iron, it goes a certain distance. So if I pull out my three iron for a particular shot, I might not have enough to get it to where I want it to go, but if I pull my four, iron, my four wood out, it'll go farther than I want it to go. Make sense? So there's a gap there. I need a club to, to, to fit that gap. So I come to this realization, and then I spend two months researching as to the perfect club to go into my bag. I watch YouTube videos that are reviews. I read online. Anybody else shop like this? Come on, I'm not the only one. You know you're looking up reviews on TVs that have the highest resolution, and it, I'm not the only one. And I, and I narrow it down, and I, and I figure out what I want to buy, and then I go to the store, I go to the golf store, and I walk in, and some nice person walks up to me and says, hi, how are you doing? Can I help you? And what's my response? No, I'm good. <laughs> now, I had just spent two months researching as to which club I wanted. I had narrowed it down. I was going to that store to purchase that club, and yet we are wired to immediately say, no, I'm good. What's the fear in that? The fear, I think, from a behavioral economic standpoint is, let's be honest, we all like to buy things. Yeah, we all like to buy things, but none of us want to be sold. Right? Because to be sold is almost to be controlled. And to be controlled means that that person has imposed their power on you. So we'll unpack that here in just a few minutes. But, so I go in and, and, and I purchase the club. And the reality is I made the decision to buy the club two months earlier. I used all of the research to back up my decision that it really, really was a good decision. And I needed, clearly, <laughs> I needed that club. Now, this holds true for conversations that we have on a daily basis. So for those of you who are on Facebook, I use Facebook because it's the quintessential social media piece, and I know that, and mainly because I'm old and I'm not on Instagram, so there you go. I got some laughs, some of you got it. Um, does anybody know how the algorithm for Facebook works? No? Okay. So first of all, Facebook is designed to keep you addicted. It is designed to show you things that you like. So every time you hit the like button, guess what happens? More of that thing pops up in your feed. If you like an individual's picture, that individual shows up in your feed more. If you like a particular page, that page shows up in your feed more. If you like uh, a page like Upworthy or something like that, it shows up in your feed more. What you'd end up doing without even realizing it is you begin to create what's called an echo chamber for yourself. Now, an echo chamber is you have particular ways of viewing the world, a particular ideology, you have confirmation bias, and you say yes to these particular things that then confirm your bias. And before you know it, all you hear are voices that support your particular bias. Now, this can happen outside of Facebook as well. My grandfather only watches Fox News. Same thing. 
Somebody who only puts on CNN. Same thing, confirmation bias. So what do we do? How do we get unstuck from this norm that we, we find ourselves in without being um, aware of it? That's really what I want to dig into today. All right, so power and control. Power seems to be the issue. How many of you are familiar with this? This is Lord Acton. He wrote this in the 1800s. It was a, a letter to a bishop that he was writing, and it says, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Great men are always bad men. Is that true? This is what we call a pregnant pause in the business. Is that true? Or could it be the power in and of itself is neutral? And how that power is wielded depends on whether it's good or it's bad. So some of the language in Christianity that we throw out there all the time is the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Now that's really great Christianese, but what does that mean? Right? What does that actually mean for the power of the Holy Spirit to come into our life? I want to do a case study with you. I want to do a case study of a character in the Bible by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was, is probably the epitome of somebody in the, in the scriptures who has a confirmation bias. Did you know that in Jesus' day, in Judaism, they had a two-party system? They did. We have the Democrats and the Republicans. They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a two-party system. In fact, there was a, something called the Sanhedrin where representatives from the Pharisees and representatives from the Sadducees came together and made a court or Congress. Our times really haven't changed that much, to be honest with you, people. And so here's where we find Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin. So he is a public official representing the people in a position of power ensconced in an ideological view. Okay? The main difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one main difference was the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife and the Pharisees did believe in an afterlife. And there's some places in the Gospels where the Sadducees go after Jesus and they're like, explain the afterlife to us. The other major difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees were comfortable with Roman rule because they, in their mind, leveraged it for their own gain individually and as a group of Sadducees. They were okay with Roman rule. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were not okay with Roman rule. Now here's what the Romans did when they took over a territory. They allowed a certain level of autonomy for those individuals. They didn't go in and necessarily completely destroy cultures, um, but they leveraged what was already in place for control, basically. So they allowed the Sanhedrin to um, rule the people of Jerusalem and rule the, the, the surrounding areas to a certain point. Now, there were some things that the Sanhedrin couldn't do that only the Romans could do. One of those being execution. 
So it's not surprising that when Jesus goes in front of the Sanhedrin and he's found guilty, who do they give him off to? The Romans. It's the Romans that actually perform the execution. So here we have Nicodemus. He is about ensconced in an ideological view as one can ever be. And so this is from, I'm going to read you eight verses from John 3, verse 1. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could do these miracles, miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. And Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Let me stop here um, because it's at this point that some biblical commentators or preachers will make a joke at how stupid Nicodemus was. I don't know if you've heard that before, but they'll be like, oh, and there's a human climbing back up into his mother's womb. Nicodemus was a bright guy. He was a Pharisee. He was about as educated as one could be in that day. He was an official. He was a ruler. He, he had power. He was not stupid. What he was doing was a rabbinic practice where rabbis would go back and forth asking questions and what he was doing was removing the absurd from the conversation. He's basically saying, look, Jesus, you and I both know that somebody can't get back into their mother's womb. What are you actually trying to say to me here? But he does it in the form of a question. And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit, to me, is, is probably the hardest of the three persons of the Trinity to wrap my head around. Would you agree? I mean, Jesus we can relate to. He took on flesh. He walked as we walked. He felt the emotions we felt. He, he felt the pain that we felt. We can, we can relate to that. Uh, the idea of a father or a loving parent who wants the best for us, loves us through the hard times, loves us through the good times, wants to see us succeed and, and be, do, well, do good things in this world, we can kind of wrap our hands around that. But an ethereal spirit thing out there, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around. Uh, how many of you watch Ghost Hunters? How'd you like that for a hard turn left, right? <laughs> Ghost Hunters, if you haven't seen it, I think it's on the Sci-Fi channel. Um, it's kind of a formulaic program where they go in, they create tension in the program, and then they come to the conclusion whether it's an actual ghost or not. The problem with our English language is I think that without even realizing it, we start to attach meanings to certain words. And in the cultural zeitgeist, if you will, the idea of a ghost, from my perspective, maybe it's not for you, but from my perspective, a ghost is a spirit who is in the in-between, and like, they haven't resolved everything in their life, so they're just hanging out, or you might see movies where they're replaying certain episodes in their life over and over again, you familiar with this? There's almost a sense of stagnation to it. 
But the reality is, whenever the Bible talks about the Spirit or the Holy Ghost, there's always movement with it. So in the Old Testament, Hebrew, the New Testament is Greek. The Old Testament, we primarily see the word ruach. So when you do Hebrew, you've got to get that guttural. <laughs> ruach. And ruach is multivalent. It means multiple things. It means, it means wind. It means breath. It means movement. So we see the Spirit in the Old Testament. First place we see the Spirit is in the creation myth. The Spirit is what? Hovering over the waters of creation, uh, giving the power towards the created order. And then we see the Spirit of God breathed into Adam, breathed life into Adam. Fast forward to the New Testament. The Greek term for spirit is pneuma. And so we see the spirit, pneuma is actually translated wind. When the spirit shows up, wind shows up. Movement. In Acts 1.8, before Jesus ascends, he says this to his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now this is really interesting. The Greek term for power that we translate in English, power in that passage is Dynamis, from which we derive the word dynamite. There is no stagnation with the Holy Spirit. Things get dangerous when the Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit possesses a dynamite-like power that works within a believer to blast out anything that is unlike God. It is not a power that exalts one person above others. It does not manipulate or control others. Instead, the Holy Spirit uses her power to break us so that she might remake us. Now, some of your heads are going, well, why are you using the feminine? What's going on? In English, we don't have masculine and feminine, right? How many of you studied Spanish? Masculine and feminine. Greek, masculine and feminine. Hebrew, masculine and feminine. Every time the Spirit shows up in the Bible, guess what it is? Feminine. Gives us a fuller picture of who God is and how God cares for us. Men, guess who the power's with? Yeah! It does not manipulate or control others. Instead, the Holy Spirit uses her power to break us so that she might remake us. The more we get self out of the way and yield our will to hers, the more powerfully she is able to pour herself out through us to others, and the more powerfully she is able to transform our lives. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. The first time he comes to Jesus is uh, what time of day? Night. Why? Because his group identity, who he identifies with are the Pharisees. And at this point in the story, the Pharisees and Jesus aren't on the same page. And for Nicodemus to show up to Jesus and for people to see that, 
he could then be ostracized from the group. He's taking a risk. He's showing up at Jesus. And now what he does in this conversation I find to be particularly amazing. And it goes back to that Nicodemus wasn't stupid. He was a smart guy. He asked Jesus a question. What do you really mean? When you ask people questions, what are you showing to them? Interest. You're showing that you want to genuinely hear their response. That you are actually looking for their perspective. When you make a statement or tell somebody something, what are you saying? I'm right. You wrong. That's just how it is. Right? So Nicodemus shows up. He's astute enough to understand his confirmation biases. He realizes that Jesus represents something different than he's, than he's seen before. And he enters into conversation with Jesus. And he allows himself to be opened up. The second time that Nicodemus shows up. Anybody know? The Sanhedrin are arguing. And they're busy getting witnesses to throw Jesus under the bus, basically. To say that he's committed blasphemy and so that he can be killed. And Nicodemus stands up in opposition to the group think, the group mentality, and says, wait a minute here. Jesus deserves a fair trial just like everybody else. And he uses his position of power and his voice to try to persuade that body to go a different direction. The third time Nicodemus shows up. Anybody know? Jesus has been crucified. He's taken his last breath. And Nicodemus is standing at the foot of the cross and he helps pull Jesus' body off the cross. He physically washes Jesus' body and helps lay him to rest. By that point, Nicodemus had fully moved and transformed the ensconced positions that he had because he was open to do so. Power is interesting. A lot of social um, psychiatrists and and social scientists have done issues with power and business and ethics and all these other things. And past uh, studies have shown that usually the person at the very top of the hierarchy, whatever their motive or their ethics kind of trickles down throughout the organization. You've seen this, right? Um, That's where we get the idea of absolute power corrupts absolutely. This hyper-individualism that trickles down to everybody. What's interesting now is an associate professor at Vanderbilt, she's done some studies, this is from 2015, that there's also a power dynamic from the bottom up. And that people in leadership can tend to go along to get along, as my pastor from Kentucky would say, so that they don't lose their personal identity within the group structure. I say that to say this. Hyper-individualism can be corrupted, but so can hyper-collectivism. And so how do we put ourselves in a position with conversations with people that hold that tension between both of them? And I think Nicodemus pulls it off. So I'll leave you with this. Three questions. What confirmation biases are you holding on to? Are you even aware of them? 
Second question. This is a good one. I wrote it. <laughs> what assumptions have you made about individuals or groups that are the supposed enemy? We are about as divided as we've ever been in an us-versus-them mentality. So what are you assuming about them that may or may not be true? Lastly, when you're in conversation with others who don't agree with you, now there's an assumption built into this is that you're actually having conversation with others that don't agree with you. Okay? I said it last week, I'll say it again. I encourage you to do so. The temptation these days is to just ignore everything and just, and, um, you know, watch Good Morning America and move on, right? Probably not even Good Morning America. What, like The Bachelor or something? I don't know. When you're in conversation with others who don't agree with you, are you simply looking to counter their argument? Or are you actually listening? Play a game with yourself. See if you can outlisten the other person. So I know what you're thinking. All right, so you've spent 35 minutes now talking about not talking. Yeah, I have. <laughs> because honestly, I think that's the only way we're going to get ourselves out of this thing is if we stop talking at each other and we start listening to one another. Biblical commentator um, Lindsay Trozo says this about Nicodemus. Though at first resistant... He pushes against daunting social and ideological boundaries. Through the darkness that clouded his first visit, moving toward a new way of thinking, illuminated by the light of the world. May the Spirit show up in our lives. And may the Spirit blow through us and begin to transform us from the inside out so that we can transform the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.
I, I only got you out five minutes late. Um, this, uh, Marvin always says, you know, the, the third sermon of the day, that's the dangerous one. Uh, if you want to hear like the, the good packaged one, always come to the second. Because the first one, you're still working out kinks. The second one is probably pretty solid. And the third one, you just, you get long-winded. So, uh, <laughs> now to a benediction, right? <laughs> May the Holy Spirit enter into our lives. May we be open. May we listen. And may we be transformed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.